Well, we are continuing in an introduction to a new series that we started last week. It's entitled Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. We'll watch a short little video towards the end of the message. It just kind of sets, sets the, the, the tone for what shalom means. So we're going to come back to that. But we, we just want to talk about just where this series is going to take us, why this series is important to us. Again, how it's the last installment that fits the final quadrant of this discipleship uh, strategy that we believe has been at work here in our church for many years, but now we're finally able to articulate it in a way that now it becomes strategic. And so tonight, again, is going to be uh, an introduction of sorts, and then we'll pick up with it in earnest uh, starting next week. So, But before we get in, I have a couple of things I want to do. One is I just want to say thank you to Elise Baldwin. She's, she's not here, she's, and she's probably not watching online. You can clap. But she's going to be watching later. She's lots of, lots of people living in Lisa's house, lots of family. So I was talking with her this week, and she said, Fred, I usually watch the service. I wait till late Saturday. Everybody's gone to bed, and I just get some alone time with God. And so, Elise, we know you're going to be watching this in a couple hours, and so we just want to say thank you to her. She is our church business administrator, and, uh, and this month marks her seven-year anniversary of being on staff with City Life. And I know it's good. And the work that she does here is just, it's invaluable what she does to help us maintain this property, uh, all the renting churches here, everything that she does with our finances, her integrity, but also her expertise, her expertise. And, uh, and we just, we believe, right, the, the work that she does is no less spiritual than the work that I do. That's what we believe here at City Life Church. I, I might have the title pastor in front of my name, but that doesn't mean that my work here is more spiritual than the work that other people do. We believe in what 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4 teaches us, that we're all the body of Christ working together, operating in our own gifting and calling. This church would not be here uh, without Elise, and so we thank you. Thank you. Hey, let me share this too before we love, jump in. This um, if, if, if you've been here for, for the last several weeks, you know that is for communion, the Lord's Supper that we do the first weekend of every month. We're inviting people into experiential moments as part of the Lord's Supper. As you know, we did uh, foot washing a couple of months ago uh, for people that have been wounded by spiritual leaders, and we stood in proxy and said, said, I'm sorry to them. And so if you were here for that service, you know how powerful it was. I got permission from someone sent us. I just want to read an excerpt from it. It says, I don't want to miss the opportunity to tell you how impactful it was when you all prayed for me that day. As soon as you all started talking about church hurt, my spirit was tuned in and I was listening closely. Listen to what she said. I have had a physical pain in my heart for years that doctors haven't been able to explain. My close friends know how I've worried about it and often wondered if something was wrong with me. Deep down in my heart, I wondered if it was a spiritual wound pain that was manifesting itself physically. My heart started burning in that exact same spot when you all were talking about being hurt by a spiritual leader. But this time it wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't painful, but it was a healing sensation. And when I heard the words, I'm sorry, I was completely overcome with this feeling of healing warmth. She said, that's the best way I can describe it. She said, I could feel it inside of me. Every day I touch where that pain used to be, and it's truly gone. So much has already happened since we've been coming back to city life, and what you all did on that day was impactful, it was imperative, and it was priceless. While walking through this terrible pain we've been in, 
in, I had decided something. I don't know how or what part it is, but I desperately want to be someone that brings home the lost sheep. Come on, isn't that so good? So good. So you know who you are. Thank you for sharing that story with us. And if you've got a story like that, share it. We'll get your permission, but we'll share it without your name to protect your dignity. We did the stations um, earlier this month for people that are wrestling with shame. And then again, we're going to do it again the first weekend in October. We'll have another experiential moment that's, that's waiting for you. So, All right, let's get into this tonight. This is the, the Shalom series again, The Way. Again, it's the, the Way Part 2. Uh, being at peace with your portion. Where I want to start, these were originally going to be closing thoughts for me that I was just going to kind of tack on to the end. But on Friday, as I was praying over this message, I had such a distinct feeling that the Holy Spirit said, I want you to move all of this to the front. So I don't know if this is because there was a mother whose child's nursery number was going to come up and they were going to miss this. So God's been editing my, my sermon for you. If it's somebody that's going to be watching online that was going to tune in for a little while and then tune out, God's got your number. He's making sure you can hear this. So this is the unfortunate question. So we're going to dig into this, and then if, with the time we have left, we'll finish out this introduction to this series. I'm, I'm calling this the unfortunate question. And, and maybe somebody here, as soon as I read this, you're going to say, oh, he's talking to me. If I'm going to heaven, why should I care about living like Jesus? The unfortunate question. If I'm going to heaven, if, I may, if, if grace is going to get me there, why should I care about living like Jesus? I've been praying about that this week, and I, I feel like there's a long list, but I picked four. And, and one is this, it's because God says that there are rewards in heaven. Did you know that? The Bible talks about there will be rewards that are meted out to people according to their deeds. Listen to this verse in Revelation 22, verse 12. It said, look, I am coming soon. Listen to what it says. This is Jesus talking, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. This means that they've been earned. This, the language of repay. We don't earn our salvation. That's by, that's by grace. We, we get that. We understand that. But the Bible talks that there's something else, that how we live, there's going to be rewards. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 14. It says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, and straw, but on the day of judgment, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. This is talking about our works, people. The fire will show if any person's work has any value. There's, there's going to be an assessment of how well did we do in this life as a devoted follower of Christ in discipleship. Any, anybody remember growing up in school with field days, right? Anybody have, you have field day memories? Now for some of you, maybe it's traumatic because field day didn't go well for you. I am undefeated in the three-legged race. And I just, I have never lost a three-legged, maybe next summer we should do City Life Church field day. We'll bring back all the games, right? right and we'll, we'll, we'll be doing... Maybe some of us gray hairs will race some of these young kids in the three-legged race, right? Just to see if we still got it. How about the sack race? Remember the sack race? Hey, your favorite one to watch as a spectator but not participate in is where you had to run down and spin around with your forehead on a, a baseball bat, and then you're right trying to get your equilibrium, and kids are throwing up everywhere, right? It was so much fun. So much fun. So much fun. Field day, right? all the different field day games that, that you would do. And then they would give out, there would be ribbons for people who won. When, when I was in field day, I'm not making any statements here of judgment, but we didn't do participation. You had to win to get a ribbon. Back when I was coming along, you had to win to get a ribbon. 
We do not know what the rewards are going to be like in heaven. The Bible does not tell us what it's going to be. It just says that there will be some. This is part of living in the mystery. What we can't do is let what the Bible doesn't say cause us to not believe in what it does say. It does not tell us what the reward will be, how how that's going to be presented to us, what what value experientially it's going to be. It's hard to think of how could there be rewards if we're already in a perfect place. I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that if God says, I'm going to put it in here, I think it's because he wanted us to understand it. There's going to be rewards. Let's not just make it to heaven. Let's get ready for it. We talked about that last week. So I'm just slipping in this little contest. I didn't have time to do it last week, so I'm going to drop it in here. My good friend Alvin Tatum, who comes to church here, found this picture online of Trent Dilfer. And he said, Fred, I didn't know that you were also a football coach. I was like, ah, I can see that. His beard's a little longer than me. So we said, all right, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do a little bit of rewarding here at the City Life Church. So I'm going to post this picture to my Facebook and Instagram page tonight. And then when you put a caption in, right? You know what I'm talking about? You put a ca- Some people have already done captions, so do it again. You put your best Pastor Fred caption under that, and then we're going to do a drawing next week for everybody that participates, and we're going to do a $100 Amazon gift card. You with me? $100 Amazon gift card next week to the person. It, we'll, we'll draw it out. So you might say, well, I can't come up with a good It doesn't matter how good, right, your, your caption is. So now... I didn't put it up already because I know you. You would be doing that instead of listening to the rest of the sermon. I, see, I'm, smart. I'm a smart guy. I'm a smart guy. So after, later tonight, after you get a cookie from the Life Group reception, find me on Facebook, find me on Instagram. If you don't follow me or are not my friend, then you can be tonight. You can be tonight. Let me just say this about rewards too. We're not competing against one another. I don't believe that. We're not in comp- I don't think there's rewards because we're competing with each other. I think we're competing against our own potential. We're competing against our own potential. So there might be some people that we would look at and say, I, they're, they're going to have incredible rewards. But it, it might just be that they've just scratched the surface of their potential as great as they, it might appear. They, and then there might be some that we would see, and there's just going to be piles of rewards in front of them. And it's not going to look like they did much, but it could be that they broke so far past the potential that even God set for them, that there's going to be incredible rewards waiting for them. Not competing against one another, competing against our own. There's going to be rewards. I I feel like one of the reasons why we're supposed to care about living like Jesus and patterning our lives after him is because we're supposed to point other people to Jesus, right? If your idea is, I'm okay as long as I get there, right, That's, that's not even a Christian attitude and mindset, There should be something inside of me that says, I want to get there, but I also want other people to be there because of my example and because of my witness. I'll never forget in the the summer of 1990, I was a bank teller in the day and I was bartending at night. I was a college graduate. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And a family friend by the name of John Tal, a passionate follower of Christ, I'm, I'm not living my life for Jesus at this point. Walks in, I look up, he's at my line at the bank, and just with, with no sense of privacy at all, looks at me and says, Fred, are you still living your life for Jesus? I'm like, this is a bank, John. Can we just, can you give me your deposit slip and just lower your voice a little bit? John, tell, he did not care. He did not care. 
I'm going to find John Tal in heaven one day and I'm going to say, one of the reasons I'm here is because of you. Are there people that are going to find you in heaven? I have this picture sometimes that we're just going to be in this massive crowd and people are going to be shouting that. Somebody's going to start it and then just one after another. It might take a thousand years before it plays out, right? You're going to, I'm here because of you. And then somebody, I'm here because, right? Is anybody going to point at you and say, I'm here because of you? That's one of the reasons why we should care about living like Jesus. I've got verses in here. You can download the notes. The notes are always online for us that talks about our example to others. It's Christ's character being formed in us. We've all been on trips and journeys, and we look for road signs. We look for landmarks. You and I are supposed to be road signs at landmarks for people to find Jesus. Can we just say two, one? Is also because the more you become like Christ, the better your life's going to be. It's not a problem-free life. There's going to be suffering. We're going to talk about that in this series. There's a portion of suffering waiting for all of us in this, in this life beyond just foolish consequences. But John 10.10 clearly says that Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure. Eternal life is not just measured on the time continuum. It's measured on the depth continuum. And every time there's something in here that says don't do it, God's not trying to rob you of pleasure. He's trying to protect you from mediocrity. Becoming like Christ is the best possible life that you can have. And then this fourth one, and then we're going to move on. I love this one. is because you have an opportunity in this life to create a feeling of pleasure in God's heart. Can you imagine that? It's hard for us to think that we can create something in him. We read this book and we read about all the things that he has created in this world and he has created in us. We look at the creation story, which is going to be a big part of this series in Genesis chapter 1, and we see the, the power that he had to create. Something out of nothing, beauty out of darkness, order out of chaos, simply with this spoken word. What, what power to create. But yet here we are told in this book that we also have the power to create. Not trees and fish and planets and skies, but we have the power to create feeling in other people by the way that we treat them, by the words that we speak. And here in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, listen to this verse. It says that you and I have the ability to create feeling in the heart of the creator of the universe. The one who created us, we can create something in him. Imitate God, it says here. Therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, right? Don't just get to heaven, become like him. Listen to what it says. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Here it comes, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, now is this talking about the sacrifice of Christ's life? Yes, but the implication of the text is that when you begin to live your life sacrificially in the same way that Christ did and begin to move in the character of Christ, the implication is that your life too becomes a pleasing aroma to God himself. You and I have the ability to create feeling in the heart of God. What kind of feelings are in him because of us? The way, the way. This is what we're going to begin to use the phrase to refer to our approach to discipleship with these four different 
quadrants. Again, it comes out of Matthew 16, so this is just a little bit of touch point from last week. Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, right? He's contrasting his way to our ways. You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Here it comes again, right? There's judgment. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom, before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we explained it last week that this is a reference for what's about to happen because if you keep reading in Matthew 17, you get to the Mount of Transfiguration. And I think Jesus is trying to say to you and to me, when we pick up the way, when we begin to live our lives like Christ lived his, we begin to pattern our lives after him. When we do our part, the Holy Spirit begins to do a transformative work inside of us. And in the same way Jesus was transformed on the top of the mountain, there is a transformation that takes place in us. Many of you from this summer, you were here and you saw us tell what we're saying is the story. This is the story of the Bible it was the sermon about Nicodemus. If you weren't here, you should check that out. Just a presentation of the gospel and what it means. If Scripture is the story, then Jesus is the way. You can't come to any other conclusion. If you believe in that story that we taught you over the summer, if you believe in the story of this book from heaven to heaven, where heaven begins and where heaven ends up in this book from Genesis to Revelation, if you believe that this is the story, then you must also come to the conclusion that Jesus is the way. Early Christians, as we taught you last week, they weren't called Christians. They were called people of the way. Part of that comes from John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes into the Father but by me. They begin to adopt that phraseology to articulate who they were and what they were about in Acts 9, 1 to 2. We see that also secular society also referred to them as the way. The term Christian didn't come until a little bit later. You see that nomenclature gets attached to them in Acts eleven twenty six, and then also in 1 Peter 4. Christ, as we joked last week, is not Jesus' last name. It's descriptive. It means the anointed one. Because the Gentile world did not have a concept for Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew concept and idea. And as the Gentile world began to learn about this idea of the Messiah, they came up with the title called the Christ, which means the anointed one. It was their way to try to articulate with their language what a Messiah would be and was. So that's how he came to be known as Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Christian means to be like the anointed one. First century people who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah were identified by names that placed a greater emphasis on becoming like Jesus and not just believing in Jesus. Let me read that again. First century people who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah were identified by names that placed a greater emphasis on becoming like Jesus and not just believing in Jesus. Do beliefs matter? Yes. It's one of the quadrants of our four-part discipleship strategy called DOXA, which I'm going to do an overview tonight. Beliefs are important. 
But if those beliefs aren't changing the way that you live, then you've settled for intellectualism, and that's not Christianity, because Christianity is about the way. It's about becoming like him. I want City Life Church to be a place where people learn how to pattern their lives after Jesus. To not just believe in him, but let's live like him. Let's live like him. So this is what we're calling the way. This slide's going to pop up on the screen. There's four words. Again, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, they're going to be familiar to you. If not, they might be unfamiliar. That's okay. It's praxis and doxa, which are both Greek words. And then we have shema and shalom. Praxis is the word that translates deeds oftentimes in the New Testament. But the connotation is there is what characterizes you. Not just did you do something, but is that thing that you did, does it characterize who you are. And, then, and, it, and it also carries the idea that what you're doing flows out of who you are. So the emphasis there is more on the virtue than on the act. So we talk about this idea of practice. We have actually a booklet. It's, if you're visiting, it's free to you. Find someone in a blue shirt. We'll give you one. But that's where this journey began for us many years ago. And then over the years, we've been rolling these in. Doxa. We, we talked about practice last week. So you can listen to that, the overview. It's called The Way of Jesus' Character. Then we come to doxa, which is the way of Jesus' belief. Jesus believed things. He, he, much of his teaching was spent correcting false thinking and myths that had worked their way into the lives of the people of God. He brought correction. He brought new beliefs. He affirmed some beliefs that they already had. So we know that believing like him is a part of becoming like him. It's just not the only part. And then the way we believe should also, this is the beauty of the word doxa, should reveal to the world the glory of God. Because doxa translates in the, Old, in the New Testament as the word glory. Doxa in common Greek language in the first century in Jesus' day literally meant common beliefs that people embraced. And then when they began to write the New Testament, they borrowed that word to try to articulate this elusive concept of the glory of God based on the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kabod. I love that, that it connects those two together. I think that was by God's intention. Because our beliefs should reveal to the world the glory of our Creator and His plan for our salvation. We have seven foundational beliefs here at City Life. God is one, the Bible is true, eternity is real, humankind is helpless, the cross is enough, Jesus is life, and the church is central. We did that entire series in the early part of this year. You can go back and find that online through the YouTube channel or through our website, The Way of Jesus' Belief. All of these beliefs should some way instruct the way that you live. I know for me over these last couple of years, God has won, has been a deeply instructive belief for me. Not just believing in the idea of the Trinity, not just believing in the divinity of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus. We understand these are, these are formative, foundational, doctrinal beliefs of Christianity. These are orthodox beliefs. But are they changing the way that you live? I, I know for me, it, it began to challenge me to ask myself the question, am I really living in deep covenant relationship with the body of Christ and the family of God and the way that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in relationship with each other. Right? And it began to challenge me and to, and to convict me that, that people that believed differently than I did, people who voted differently than I did, yeah, people who, who had different ideas about 
how this country needs to remedy the social ills that are in front of us. Right? And that list goes on and on and on. And you've got a list just like that too. And the people that I tended to disagree with were people that I didn't necessarily want to be in relationship with, right? Because the, the nature of our humanity is, is to, to go towards people that affirm us. But in John 17, Jesus said, I pray that they will be one as we are one. And I don't think he meant that once they all finally agree, they can find harmony. I think he was saying, I want them to find harmony in spite of their disagreements, so we pursue relationships with other churches, with other people. I think it's part of the vision of this property. I think this is one of the reasons why God gifted this property to us two years ago. The five churches, including us, that are here, that there's, there's, we're, we're not all the same. Most of the people that go to our church would not go to their churches and vice versa because we have different beliefs. We have different theological preferences. We have different doxological. I'm making that word. I made that word up this week. That's how you, that's how your theology instructs your worship. We worship differently than other churches. That's okay. But the question is, is the oneness of God inspiring me to be in relationship with these people? Come on, we're here in the South. There's a lot of division between the historically white church and the historically black church. How is the belief that God is one instructing our relationship with churches that are different than we are. Come on. That's one of the reasons why I got involved with working with the Virginia Unity Project. I'm proud of the relationship I have with Pastor Kevin Swan downtown, the relationship I have with Nigel and Kevin Trimper down in Norfolk. These beliefs that we have should begin to instruct the way that we live. It's not just supposed to be academic. Supposed to be life transforming. We have Shema, which is the way of Jesus' obedience. Shema, the way of Jesus' obedience. We did this series. We, we started in it actually before the pandemic broke out, but then because of the pandemic in 2020, we paused the series, but we came back to it this year and finished it. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. There is not a Hebrew word for obey. Because in Hebrew, to hear or listen and obey are two sides of the same coin. If you hear from God, then you should be obedient to him. And so we came up with the analogy, are, are we reflexively obedient to God? Right? The old patella reflex. You go, you used to get the physical, and they hit that part of your knee, and even though you're not even trying, your leg just begins to move. Do we move in reflexive obedience when God says do or don't? Because I believe that's how Jesus lived his life. It's incredible, isn't it, that Jesus said of himself, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. That Jesus' obedience to the Father here on this earth, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in every way just as we are. Tempted in every way. But yet his obedience was always reflexive with the Father. As he was led throughout his life, ultimately giving himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. I'm reflexively obedient in some things, and then I'm obstinately disobedient in others. And I think we can all say that about different parts of our lives. We're never going to get all the way there. You've heard me say that. We're never going to get all the way there. But I want to be closer five years from now than I am today. And as I look back over my life, I'm closer now than I was five years past. 
I want the longer that I live to be more and more reflexively obedient to God and the prompting of the Holy Spirit and to the example that Christ has laid in front of me. And these five conversions of the soul that we taught, again, at great length, you should go listen to the series. If all of this is unfamiliar to you, this is teaching by a gentleman, a Jesuit priest by the name of Don Gelpi. He talks about a religious conversion, a moral conversion, an intellectual conversion, an effective conversion, and a socio-political conversion. You can get the definition of those in that series. Again, the notes for that series are all downloadable through our website. I like to think of these as the deep end of the pool. You can splash around in the shallows. You can just make it into heaven as we were to go back and continue reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about people that are going to make it into heaven just barely escaping the flames, right? People in heaven, you get this picture, they're going to be walking around a little chart. They just barely made it in. I think these five conversions are some of the differences between people who just barely make it in and people who are willing to get into the deep waters of life and do some of the heavy lifting. For so many people, they've only been taught, this is what I grew up with, what, religious conversion, that's all we talked about. Sure, we talked about discipleship, but it was, discipleship was just a, uh, so many times just a deeper understanding of the religious conversion I experienced, but nothing practical was laid in front of us of how the character of Christ really begins to form inside of us. And one of the ways that we see the character of Christ reflected in us is reflective obedience. And I believe that you've got to work through these five conversions if you're going to see an increase in the reflexiveness of your obedience to him. You will not work through these well without a church family. You're only going to get so far by yourself, people. You've got to have a church family. I think you also have to have a pastor. You have to have people that are, are spiritually mature and have spiritual training to help you understand these and help you understand where you are in your journey. Sometimes you will also need, in addition to a pastor and a church family, you will need a therapist, especially for people that have experienced trauma in their life. We, be, we believe in what Victoria, I love that word that Victoria had, we believe that there can be breakthrough. But we also know that in addition to breakthrough, sometimes when it comes to depression and anxiety and other things you might struggle with, a breakthrough is not what's waiting for you. A journey is what's waiting for you of discovering and healing that takes time, that a gifted therapist walks you through to find healing and freedom from the things that you're struggling with. You need a church family, you need a pastor, you may need a therapist. And I cannot tell you this, you're also going to need diverse Christian friendships. If you go to a church that does not look like ours, and when you look around a room and everybody looks like you, then you've got to go find those diverse Christian friendships somewhere, somehow. Because if you live your life in an echo chamber, you're never going to do the heavy lifting, especially when it comes to intellectual conversion and sociopolitical conversion, because all of us have filters that we read this Bible with. The Bible is infallible. Our ability to understand it is not infallible, because we're flawed as human beings. We need people with different life experiences and different perspectives that love Jesus just as much as we do to come look at this book with us and to help us see perspectives that we would have never had. It's why we're given four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because God was trying to say something to us. 
Different people saw different things about him. Even though the Bible is divinely inspired and the Holy Spirit could have used one person to tell the whole story, I think he used four different people to give us four different perspectives because that still does not change. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you have all of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Me too. But that doesn't mean that we become infallible in our ability to understand who he is. I need diverse Christian friendships in my life to help me see God in different ways and to understand the Bible in ways that I've misunderstood it. And then the last one is this, is shalom, the way of Jesus' peace, right? We have the the way of Jesus' character. We have the way of Jesus' belief. We have the way of Jesus' obedience. And then this fourth is the way of Jesus' peace. Our discipleship model is not linear, Linear discipleship models take you through this, and once you're finished with this, you go to this, and once you're finished with that, you go to another. Does that make sense? But the idea is that you're moving through. Our discipleship model is not linear. Our our discipleship model is based on addition. So whichever one you pick up first, that will be a part of your life for the rest of your life. And then you add a second, then you add a third, and you add a fourth. So you get to a place where you're working on all of them for all of your days, for the rest of your days. Because there's always a deeper place to find each of these on your journey. There's more of who Christ is that needs to be formed in us through these four revelations and insights. But let's watch that little video by the Bible Project. Let's scroll that now. And this will give you a little bit of an understanding of the breadth of this word, shalom. Let's watch together. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. 
a time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. I'm going to watch that again. You can just find it on YouTube, uh, The Bible Project, and Shalom. But you can understand, right, this idea of the biblical concept of shalom is far-reaching, it's complex, it's rich, it's, it's deep. And so in this, in this series, right, we're not, we're not saying we're going to give you everything that the Bible says when it talks about shalom. We're going to pick a piece of it because like all the other parts of this discipleship journey, it's a lifelong journey. But you got to start somewhere. And you can't talk about this idea of shalom and peace without recognizing that when you experience shalom, there is a sense of contentment that you begin to feel, a sense of contentment that you begin to feel. And so we're going to be talking with you over these next several weeks, four specific areas of contentment that we want you to find. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with yourself? Are you at peace with others? And are you at peace with creation? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with yourself? Are you at peace with others? And are you at peace with creation? And the two texts that we're going to be working through together as part of this series, each week we'll work out of these in some manner or some fashion. One is Matthew 25, 14 to 19. Now, many of you are familiar with this as the parable of the talents. I'm just going to read an excerpt from it tonight. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven will be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. And he gave five bags of silver to one, or in some translations it's called talents because that was a measure of money in Jesus' day, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip, and the servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. And the servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two bags more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground hid the master's money, and after a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account for how they had used the money. Again, if you want to keep reading of that parable, you can find that in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll read more of it in this series to come. But what you find 
In this one parable, you find all four of, of these ideas of who we're supposed to be at peace with or find contentment with. We see the master who represents God. We see ourselves, right? We're in the story. We're one of the three. But it's not just one person. There are other people, meaning that you're in relationship with other people in this journey, right? So this idea of being at peace with others. And then finally, this being, being at peace with creation. And we're going to specifically focus in on the idea that God expects you to be productive in this world. He has jobs for you to do. And are you finding peace and contentment with your portion as it relates to each of those four? I'm going to invite the band to come up. So we're going to close with a song tonight. The other story is Genesis 1, 1 to 31. The entire story of creation. You know what you find in the story of creation? You find all four of these same components. We see God. We see a person that you're supposed to identify with in the creation story, but you're not just there by yourself. You're in relationship with other people. You and others. And then you find that even in the Garden of Eden, they had jobs that they were assigned to them. They had work that they were supposed to do. This series is by no way a comprehensive study on the biblical concept of shalom. This series is about your first step towards peace and contentment. And I believe that in order to have peace, the peace we see in Jesus, it begins with peace with your portion as it relates to these four ideas. And they are this. You have to be willing to embrace the sovereignty of God. You have to be willing to embrace the reality is that he's the one that determines your portion. We're going to talk about what portion means for each of us in this life. But at some point, you have to come to grips with the reality that he's perfect, we're not. And the portions that he has assigned to you, he has the right to do because of his divinity. And then that divinity is expressed into this world through sovereign decisions. Meaning he has given us certain portions, things that are beyond our control. You've got to embrace his sovereignty. You have to embrace your unchangeables. We're going to talk about that this next week. You didn't get to pick what family you were born into. You didn't get to pick your ethnicity. You didn't get to pick the time in history. Think about all the things that God in his sovereignty assigned to you. You will never experience contentment in this life until you find some acceptance for the portions that have been given to you that are unchangeable. You, you, you cannot change the circumstances that you were born into this world in. You cannot change your ethnicity. You tracking with me? There's all kinds of things about who we are. We cannot change our personality. You've got to find a sense of contentment with the unchangeables. You have to embrace their diversity. You have to come to a place of acceptance that God had different portions for other people. You might wish that you had some other people's portions in certain ways. You've got to trust the sovereignty of God with the portion he gave to you, and you've got to trust the sovereignty of God with the portion he gave to them. We're going to be talking about that in this series. And the last one of this, I love this word. You've got to embrace your chores. you got chores. In the family of God, you have chores. And some chores you get paid for, right? I hope your vocation, whatever you pursue by way of a, a, a work that translates into an income and a standard of living, that you're doing that because you have a sense of calling, that God's given you that. But you know what? You're not supposed to get paid for every chore you do. You're not. There's supposed to be things that you're supposed to do by way of a volunteer. Just giving over your life and time and energy and efforts to things that God asks you to put your hand to. And you know what? Your chores are different from mine and different from everybody else in this room. And the same is true. Where we get so hung up in this life so many times is we want the chores that other people have been assigned. And God said, no, 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 that's not what I had for you. That's not what I had for you. That's not what I had for you. Stand with me. Father, as we go back into this moment of worship,
I pray that even now, even if this concept of peace is foreign to people, even if, if, if today, even if they're at home watching online, they've never really stopped to think about, am I, do I experience contentment in my heart? When I think about God and myself and others and, and, and the work of this life that I'm called to, I, I pray that even now, that you would give them a sign that you're going to take them on a journey where they're going to find a sense of shalom that they've never had before. I pray that supernaturally that you would just give them a down payment right now in their heart. That even right now that they would have a sense of calm that would come over them. I pray, Father, supernaturally right now that, that something of the contentment and the shalom and the peace of heaven would be birthed inside of people right now that are listening to the sound of my voice. And on this journey that you're going to take them on, you're going to help them to learn how to cause that sense of peace to grow and to spread over every part of their life and into the lives of others around them. In Christ's name, come on. And everybody said, amen. Let's worship together.